I think the worship team just preached a good sermon, don't you think? His punishment, my peace. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts 14. We are back in the book of Acts. And we're tracing right now, we're in the section where we're tracing the travels of Paul and Barnabas in what is now modern-day Turkey. But before we get into the text this morning, I want to tell you about a man uh, named Gustav Laban. That's a funny name. Funny because it's French. He was a French doctor, and uh, after he completed medical school, he decided to write in the area of psychology when it was still a very young field. And what he's best known for, perhaps best known for, is his work on the nature of crowds, the dynamics of how a large group operate. And um, he studied how crowds think and how they act. And he thought of three main things that kind of govern the dynamics of crowds, and here, are, here they are. And I'm taking this right off of the uh, Wikipedia page. Antonymity, or anonymity, anonymity. There's no T in there. Anonymity. Anonymity provides a rationale to individuals. Uh, it provides them a feeling of invincibility and loss of personal responsibility. In other words, when you get in a group and the group starts to think as a, a whole unit, um, an individual becomes primitive, unreasoning, and emotional, and this lack of self-restraint allows individuals to yield to their instincts and accept the, uh, the drives of the crowd. Again, he's writing in the area of psychology. So you, could be, you become part of a large group, and all of a sudden the, kind of, the group takes on a mentality of its own, and the group can do things, and you feel like maybe you're not a part of it, or maybe you're invincible. It's not your responsibility what the group does. You're just one of the group. The second area is contagion. Contagion refers to what he said is the spread in the crowd of, of particular behaviors. Uh, individuals will sacrifice their personal beliefs for the collective interest. And so this is when you see a crowd and the, the crowd starts to get crazy and do, do and say crazy things. And you've got like Aunt Mabel, who's the most timid just gentle person, but now Aunt Mabel's part of the crowd, and she's yelling and screaming too, you know? Contagion. It, it spreads like a virus. And then suggestibility is the third thing. Suggestibility is the mechanism through which the contagion is achieved. As a crowd coalesces into a single mind, suggestions made by strong voices in the crowd create a space for the unconscious, he was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud, the unconscious to become the forefront and the guide to guide its behavior. At this stage, the psychological crowd becomes homogeneous and malleable to the suggestions from the strongest members. And then Laban wrote this directly, quote, the leaders we speak of are usually men of action rather than words. They are not gifted with keen foresight. They are especially recruited from the ranks of those, this is, these are his words, morbidly nervous, excitable, half-deranged persons who are bordering on madness, unquote. Now, I don't know how much of this to believe, but one thing is for sure. When you get people into a large crowd, they tend to behave differently than they do as individuals. 
And if you want some evidence of that, I'll, I'll simply say this. Um, you know, it's election season, and uh, there are two dominant political parties in this country. And there are more than two, but there are two dominant political parties in this country. And we as human beings, we're, we're very odd creatures, right? We will adopt the, the, the policies, the ideas of those that we affiliate with. And so um, you'll see sometimes uh, man-on-the-street interviews, right? And, and somebody will be recording this because, you know, they got to post it online on social media or something. And they'll go up to someone and they'll say, now, uh, are you a Democrat or Republican? And they'll say, whatever party they're with, and then they'll, they'll ask them some critical question about one of the beliefs of that party and hand it back to the other person. You know, why do you believe in this certain, you know, the Republican Party or the Democrat Party stands for this, that, and the other. And uh, what about, let me ask you a critical thinking question on that policy, and then you get crickets. Or maybe they'll start by saying, now, do you, this is what the party believes. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe that with all my being. Then they'll ask a critical question, and then they'll get crickets. <clears throat> We're very susceptible to this kind of group think. And, and this text today in the book of Acts is going to kind of put that on display. Paul and Barnabas are going to roll into a city. They're going to, they're going to be preaching the gospel, and they're going to perform a miracle. And the crowd is going to go wild in thinking that there's some awesome thing for a while, and then some strong voices are going to come into the crowd and swing the crowd completely the other way until they take Paul out back and stone him. Now, we as Christians, we need to do better than to allow ourselves to become susceptible to groupthink, unless that groupthink is aligned with the Word of God. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about that today. The question that we're going to be wrestling with is, as we spread the gospel, as we share the gospel, how do we guard against this phenomenon called groupthink? And we're just going to dive right into the text and look at it. So the first thing that we're going to see in the text is a recognition of God's servants. We are to recognize God's servants. Look at chapter 14, verses 8 to 10. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and, never, and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. I don't think the Bible could, could explain this uh, event any clearer. This is a guy who's a townie. He, he, he's from this place. And he has been crippled since birth. So he would be probably a well-known commodity in the town, right? He's, he, everybody knows this guy. He's the crippled guy. And um, as he was listening to Paul speak, Paul looking at him noticed that he was beginning to believe. He was beginning to understand Christ and his sacrifice and, and the forgiveness of sin. And in a loud voice, Paul you know, did a miracle. He asked him to stand upright on his feet, and the man stood upright and began to walk. Now, first thing we want to see is that Paul, uh, the, the servants of God are going to be doing God's work, right? Our, our task couldn't be made more clear. Love God with everything that we got. Love others as ourselves. Make disciples of Jesus Christ. In other words, help usher people onto the way of Christ, putting their faith in him, living according to his word, 
all of these things that we always talk about, right? And that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're out there, they're preaching the gospel. If you look at the last part of Acts 14, just to give us some context, because it's been a while since we've been in the book of Acts, we read this. When an attempt was made by Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra, that's where we are in our text today, and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Uh, You can can recognize God's servants because they are doing the work of God. Not only that, but they're living out what they believe. Um, Paul and Barnabas are far from home. They're encountering resistance often as they carry out their work. And even, not just resistance, but hostility. And yet... I, you know, think about this. You're, let's say that you had a role here in the church, and that role took you out into the public sphere, and you're, it's starting to heat up out there. You're starting to get your name in the paper. Uh, people are starting to recognize you. There, there they are, that Delaware Bible Church person that's always been vocal about the things that God wants us to be vocal about. Um, there they are, and things are things are heating up. You may may even. I don't know, get refused at a restaurant. You know, we're not going to seat you because we don't like what you stand for. Whatever. What would that do to you? Well, Paul and Barnabas keep on keeping on. Yesterday, the men of the church gathered here. We were out in the commons. We were listening to Sheriff Martin address the men. We had a great morning. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't want to put words in his mouth. But he said something along the lines of, if you try to tell people where you work that you're a Christian... But every day you come into work late. You're short and rude with your coworkers. Your work is sloppy, and you're cheating a little bit on your time card. Please don't tell people that you're a Christian. You're not doing the work of the Lord any favors if that's you, right? Paul and Barnabas don't have that problem. Paul and Barnabas are carrying out their activities. They're continuing to treat people well, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ despite the resistance. They are making a statement with their lives that a person's relationship with God is the most important thing. It's what's driving them. This is especially on display because they are willing to risk everything in order to get the message out. Now, listen, this is a kind of a how about you moment, right? Uh, our task could not be more clear is to go out there and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And I understand that sometimes it is awkward to share the good news with someone who is a friend, family member, coworker. But that's exactly what we're commanded to do. Uh, I remember Sheriff Martin shared yesterday that he was, when he was a younger law enforcement officer, he shared with somebody, uh, one of his coworkers, uh, was relating to him how some wonderful thing had just happened in his life. And, and uh, Sheriff Martin said, Uh, Well, let me tell you, the greatest thing that ever happened in my life was uh, my relationship with Jesus Christ, to which this guy said, have a nice day. Catch you on the flip-flop. It's not always going to be popular, right? But uh, these are things that we are commanded to do. This is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And as they're going about their work, they're seeking those who have faith, right? It says in the text, Paul saw this man... 
that he had faith to be made well. And have, have you ever thought about this? We, we talk about this all the time, right? We talk about how we don't save, we don't save anybody. It's God that saves people. Our job is to proclaim the good news. God does a work in their heart. And so have you ever thought about it this way? As we do evangelism, as we are simply taking this message that's been delivered to us by others that went ahead of us, and as God has worked in our lives to help us to understand that this is true and to begin to live it out, that all we're doing as we simply go around and we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, we, we share his word with others, we ask uh, honest questions, that we're simply out there seeking the people that God is working in their lives. And we recognize them because <clears throat> they're curious. They ask questions. They, they want to know more. They uh, perhaps they want to make a decision and get, uh, commit their lives to the way of Jesus Christ, commit their lives to faith in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's out there declaring the good news. He, he's looking at this guy. He's seeing that he's responding. He's listening intently. He's responding. And so he identifies him. Now, Finally, we see Paul and Barnabas being used by God to do only what God can do. And they, they, they work this miracle, right? They work this miracle. They allow this man who's been lame all of his life to walk. Now, uh, here at Delaware Bible Church, this is the way we understand this. We understand that in these days, the Bible, the New Testament, the Bible had not been completed because the New Testament had not been written yet. Paul is going to go on, the Apostle Paul is going to go on to write about a third of the New Testament himself. And so, uh, because there is no Word of God written down, at least the New Testament, the Old Testament is in place, but the New Testament hasn't been written down yet, God allows these apostles to work these miracles to validate them as God's men. That the, that the message that they're sharing is true. This is their credentials, right? Uh, when you get pulled over by a police officer, you show your, your driver's license. That's your credentials to be allowed. That's the state has allowed you to have the privilege of driving. Well, Paul and Barnabas are working these miracles as their credentials that they are validated by God because they are being used to do things only God can do to work miracles. So some people will ask me, are miracles possible today? And I say, yes, they absolutely are. And we pray for he people to get healed who have cancer and other afflictions. However, those miracles would, would be a grace of God, and they would not point us in any direction other than the word of God that we already have in our possession. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says this, the sign of a true apostle, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul and Barnabas are recognized because of that. Now today, in our day today, we're looking for, we're simply looking, as we're recognizing God's servants, we're looking for people who are, have a, a right understanding of the Bible and are, who are attempting as best they can to live that out, right? Secondly, we see that the crowd begins to make a mistake. So do not mistake accomplishments for godliness. Do not mistake accomplishments for godliness. Look what happens in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and said in Lyconian, now let's just take a break here and say this, that it's likely because they were part of the Roman Empire 
that most of the people in the empire, they're still in the empire, they spoke Greek, but in different people groups, they probably were multilingual. And so Paul and Barnabas were able to share with them, probably in the common Greek language. But these folks in this region spoke a different language. And it, the text tells us that they spoke in this Lyconian language. So saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in likeness of men. In the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. They took the accomplishments that are going on here, and instead of saying, oh, these are God's men, they said, oh, they're, they're God's. Now, there's probably some good reasons for this. Let's talk about, for a minute, the stories that we tell ourselves. The stories that we tell ourselves. Every culture is different. Every, we all come from a different part of the country or perhaps a different part of the world. And where you grew up, there are stories that are told. There's legends in my hometown that are weird. But let's just take Delaware, for example. Down the street from this church, down Sandusky Street, where the new health department building is being built, that used to be the home of a church uh, where Leroy Jenkins was the, should I say pastor? Is that, am I giving him too much honor to say that? He was a TV faith healing preacher dude. He's dead now. And he was kind of, you know, some folks were like, he's the real deal. He healed my grandma. And other people were like, he's as shady as they come, a money-grubbing, televangelist-type charlatan. He's gone now. The church has been leveled, and now they're building, like I said, the new health department building down there. But if somebody were to come to Delaware, and they were to establish a church here, and to begin some sort of a faith-healing practice and put themselves on television and stuff, we might all just agree it's Leroy Jenkins 2.0. We might say something like that, right? It's, it's Leroy Jenkins reincarnate, although we don't believe in reincarnation. Well, <clears throat> these folks here in this, this area where Paul and Barnabas are serving, they have their own legends. They have their own stories. So let me tell you what the stories, about one story they told themselves. In the particular culture where they were serving, according to William Barclay's daily Bible study, the Greeks believed that Zeus was the god of old age and Hermes was his son who was younger. Hermes was rich in eloquence and, he, and they believed that Hermes was the god of eloquence, literature, and music. The people around Lystra told a story that at one point, Zeus and Hermes had come down to earth and were visiting the people of Lystra. And they, they approached different people and said, would you, put, would you offer us hospitality? Will you put us up for the night? And everybody refused. Everybody ignored them, except for one peasant couple. They had almost nothing to their name, and they took them in to their home. So, Zeus and Hermes decided to take everyone in the city out except for this peasant couple who they elevated to a high status. So these folks were on the lookout for Zeus and Hermes paying them another visit 
And if they paid them another visit, they were going to respond differently. So when Paul and Barnabas come along, two men, and they heal this person that's lame from birth, they, this is the story they tell themselves, they concluded, this is definitely Zeus and Hermes. We're going to shower them with affection so that we can all be exalted. This is all background, right? So, that's what's going on here. Now, let's just be honest with each other. We do similar things today. We do similar things today. We, may not, we might not live according to stories and legends anymore, but we do tend to um, put a higher value on uh, folks that are good-looking. Sorry that I can't fit that bill. I do, uh, uh, folks that are taller, folks that are uh, more articulate, we, pl- we tend to place a higher value on them. And when that good-looking person goes out there and does a brilliant job with words and articulating and destroys the opposition, we go, oh, they're going to be the next president. Or, oh, what a gifted pastor. Let's all go to their church. My cousin, my first cousin, is a pastor in Dallas, Texas, in the suburb of Dallas, Texas. And Chuck Swindoll used to be the uh, president of Dallas Seminary, but at some point, he stopped that, and he opened his church, he opened a church, or became the pastor of a church in Dallas. And my cousin, my cousin jokes, he said the day Char- uh, Chuck Swindoll opened his church, 600 people were in, mem- were in attendance, and my, and my uh, cousin said, yeah, right, Chuck Swindoll saved 600 people. No, 600 people left their churches and went to Chuck Swindoll's church. That's what happened. We, are, we gravitate to a certain set of characteristics of people, right? And sometimes we fall into this trap of be, uh, becoming or, or falling into a cult of personality. We follow someone because of their eloquence, because of their uh, looks, because of their character, whatever. And we can think of names. We can think of names. We can, we can throw out names like John F. Kennedy. We can throw out names like, you know, pick your favorite pastor. Alistair Begg, right? John MacArthur. Uh, now, a lot of these folks would not, would shun all that, st- they would shun any of folks looking to them but it is a human thing that we do that we, we, we look at people and we want to follow a person. In 1 Corinthians 3, 4, Paul wrote this. He said, one person will say, I follow Paul, and another person will say, I follow Apollos. In doing that, are you not being merely human? This is a very, very common characteristic. When I was a younger man, <clears throat> there was a, a, a fella, a singer-songwriter named Rich Mullins, very popular, wrote a lot of good songs. I still have them on my playlist on my phone. And um, this is before we had playlists on our phones, and we had to buy these CDs and put them in our CD player. Anyway, Rich Mullins, uh, I got to go to one of his retreat, re- re- retreat weekends where he did a lot of Q&A with the audience. And it became very clear to me right off the bat that people were looking to him a guy who wrote really good Christian songs and, you know, was a decent singer. Wasn't, he was no Amy Grant, right? But he was a decent singer. And they were looking at him and asking him questions like, 
Please solve all of my life problems. Let me lay them out for you now. And he very wisely, numerous times, had to say, Talk to your pastor. Go back to the fellowship of your local church, get into the Word of God, and there you will find the answers. But I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I'm singing songs about Jesus. I'm pointing you to Jesus. And that's the right attitude. Now, this whole situation was probably confused because perhaps Paul and Barnabas were not familiar with the, the Lyconian language. And so these people are all running around talking in Lyconian, and Paul and Barnabas aren't picking up what they're saying. They're not seeing right off the bat that they're seeing them as Zeus and Hermes. But they soon do realize it. And the next point is, is that our job is to, your job is to point others to God. Look at verses 14 to 18. It says this, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, so that when they finally figured out what's going on, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of a of a like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them in past generations he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you the rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. You get the idea. Paul and Barnabas are highly troubled by what's going on, and so they're quick to point out, no, 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 not us, him, not us, Christ. And folks are having a hard time turning away from that. So you should be troubled when people look to you instead of God. Your job should always be to point others to God and if you're going to do that, you need to be prepared, right, to tell others about God. Paul and Barnabas are out there, and they're doing the best they can to explain to these folks, it's not us, it's not, we're not gods. Let me tell you about the living God. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Somebody came to you from your, a coworker, a friend, a family member came to you and said, you are different and I'd like to know how. Are you ready to give an account, a defense for anyone who asks? Well, the crowd has swung one way. They thought Paul and Barnabas were gods. And now we're going to see some strong voices, like I talked about early, you know, the whole crowd dynamics thing. Sometimes the crowd can be swayed by strong voices. Some strong voices are going to roll into town, and the crowd is going to grow 180 degrees the other direction. Look what, look what we see next. Understand this, that the proclamation of the gospel is offensive to others who may become violent. Look what it says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. What? I, I just want to... These guys started out north of Israel in, in Antioch. And they've traveled, you know, through Cyprus, 
up into Turkey, you know, deep, pretty deep into Turkey, and there's been Jews following them since Antioch. That's what the text says. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But the disciples gathered around him, uh, and went, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. You can see what's going on here. There's a mob mentality. If you go back and read Luke 23 and other of the gospel accounts, you'll recall that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came in, he entered Jerusalem in an event that we call the triumphal entry on the colt of a donkey riding in, people throwing their cloaks down, waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And as the days went by, and as those strong voices circulated in the crowd, the Jewish religious leaders were able to get the crowd from that point, Hosanna in the highest, to give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Give us a rebel insurrectionist and crucify this man who has done nothing wrong. This man who has taught, who has healed, who has worked miracles. Crucify him. So these Jews come from Antioch and Iconium and they persuade the crowds. They're strong voices. And they stone Paul and they take him out of the city supposing that he was dead why why would God take this man this man who is going to go on to write a third of the New Testament a man that any theological scholar would argue is the greatest of the apostles and allow him to be stoned and left for dead I don't know. But I do know this. God doesn't do anything without purpose. And sometimes even in the most horrific of human circumstances, God is working. And always in the most horrific of circumstances, God is working his plan for the good. He's working out his plan to, to rescue as many sinners without violating his own character, to rescue as many sinners because he desires that all men are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But here's the thing. Paul experienced this stoning. Today we would call what Paul experienced in this event a trauma. That's the word that we would use in our common parlance today, trauma. And it is, it's common today, I've noticed, for people to live through a very traumatic event and oftentimes that becomes the identity it becomes almost who they are their whole life is kind of geared around and centered around this bad thing that happened to them and i think that's because that in much of our world today as we forget about god and as we proceed in this in this life we conclude that that this 
this trauma is so horrifying, so horrific that there's no way we can carry on anymore. But folks, I want to remind you that this, these things that go on, these, these di- difficult and even horrific events that are placed in our lives can be used for good if we will see that God is at work. And so Paul gets up and he continues on and perhaps this becomes part of his testimony that is uh, a strong testimony they can use to to preach to other people and bring them to him perhaps that this this episode is god preparing him for what's ahead for he is going to have to be willing to lay down his life all the way to rome and all the way to his ultimate execution for the propagation of the gospel. So perhaps this is just God mercifully getting him ready to lay it down. I don't know. Different commentators have different ideas. All we know is that we have to trust that God means it for good. In Genesis 50, we see at the end of Joseph's life, after he's been, using the same word, he's been traumatized by his family. They have Sold, his brothers have sold him into slavery. Once he was in slavery, he was put in Potiphar's home. He was accused of wrongful, he was accused of doing something that he did not do by Potiphar's wife, sexual indiscretion. He was cast into prison. There he languished for years. When he helped someone out that had an audience with the Pharaoh, when that man was released from prison and went to be back with the Pharaoh in his presence, the man forgot that Joseph existed until it was convenient for him and beneficial for him to remember magically that Joseph was there and that he had this special skill of interpreting dreams. And all along, the text, the, the text in Genesis seems to indicate that all along, that God was with Joseph and Joseph continued to trust him. And God used him to interpret Pharaoh's dream, to be placed, to, to predict a coming famine, to be placed as second command in the kingdom and using his skills to store up food to rescue Egypt from the famine, but also to rescue the house of Jacob, which would later be renamed Israel. And so they, they his brothers, his family, moved into Egypt, were able to be fed. And after Jacob had died, his brothers and he had a conversation because his brothers thought, that's it, dad's dead. Joseph is surely going to take us out. And so they had this conversation. His brothers came to him and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will not... I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The culture that we're living in is getting increasingly hostile to what we believe. And you're going to have to understand that uh, the stand that we are called to take, the truth that we are taught to proclaim is going to be offensive and we might get hurt. But God's got a purpose in all of it. Finally, despite the opposition, you are to remain on mission, strengthening the church. 
We just got done talking about building up the church in our mini-series, and here's a good example of it. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. So Paul, in the ultimate like gangster move, goes back to where he was stoned and ministers there to the church, right? I don't know what kind of, what level of security they had or what hiding he was doing, but he went back to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I bet you Paul could say, let me give you a sermon illustration on this many tribulations thing. Let me tell you about what happened in Lystra. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They strengthened the churches by appointing leadership there. You can read about 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, talk about the qualifications of elders. I don't have time to go through that this morning. And then they were instructing them, right, they were equipping them for the work of ministry. These, they were, so now they're headed back. They've, they've gone to Derby, and then they turned around, and now they're heading back to their home base. And uh, so they're instructing the churches. They gave apostles, right, and prophets and evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then they were encouraging the churches as they went. They were telling the stories of what had happened in, in these cities, the, the people that were healed, the gospel that was proclaimed, the disciples. I mean, imagine that you're the audience in one of these churches that Paul is coming back through. Like, we've had tremendous success. Yeah, I got stoned in the one city. Okay, yeah, but yeah, we've had tremendous success. The churches, churches have been planted. Elders have been established. And now we're here with you, and we're going to encourage you before we make our way home. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. <clears throat> the fellowship of the saints is imperative to our success. Imperative to our success. So, how do we avoid, as we spread the gospel, how do we avoid groupthink? And here it is. We avoid, avoid groupthink by pursuing what God has said instead of what men are saying. And again, I want to be clear that groupthink can be a good thing when what God has said and what men are saying align. But when, but be warned, folks, because there are many, we talk about this a lot, there are many walking around proclaiming that they are speaking in Jesus' name when what they're proclaiming is diametrically opposed to what the Word of God clearly teaches. And you, you, Delaware Bible Church, you are to be like the Bereans. Not just trusting what I say or one of the elders says, but to, to search the scriptures to see if the things that we're saying is, are true. So, by way of possible application, here's some things to consider. Consider these things in light of Tuesday's election, right? There's a lot of things that are out there uh, in the world today that are being propaganda being pumped out by the two-party system that are saying, well, Christians should behave this way or Christians should behave that way. Mm, check your Bible. Check your Bible. There's a lot of propaganda out there. 
Secondly, consider your Bible study plan. I mean, consider, I mean, think about it. Do you have a way that you are consistently taking in God's Word, studying it for yourself? Are you growing in your understanding of God's Word? I promise you that that will serve you well going into the future as you get older and as you turn around and begin to teach others God's Word. You'll need that knowledge. So consider your Bible study plan. If it's non-existent, I can help. Put it into practice. And then finally, are you practiced at avoiding letting culture inform your decisions? There's so many messages out there being pumped at us all the time. And it's often easy to succumb to what the culture is saying, what the party is saying, what big names are saying. What does God say? That's what should be occupying your mind. What does God say? And you find that in his word.